church year. Um, we are looking at Advent hymns uh, for the church. And just a reminder for those of you who may not um, be the church nerds that we are, Advent is a season in the church, really that starts the new church year. And it's a season of preparation and, and waiting, not only for the coming of Jesus uh, as a little cute baby in the manger, but also waiting for his second coming. And so these tunes um, aren't all going to be like the Christmas tunes that we're all used to, like the Silent Nights and the Way in the Mangers, but there are things that deal with waiting. So Sarah, what uh, hymns are we looking at this week? Well, the first hymn that I want to talk about is, um, it points back or is a paraphrase of Isaiah 40, similar to a hymn that Steve talked about last week, which was Comfort, Comfort, Now My People. This hymn is, There's a Voice in the Wilderness. And so the first verse is almost straight up quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. Um, the first verse is, There's a voice in the wilderness crying, A call from the ways untrod. Prepare in the desert a highway, a highway for our God. The valleys shall be exalted, the lofty hills brought low, and straight all the crooked places where God, our God, may go. And so it, it, it's, it's this hymn that is almost accompanying Israel as they go out into exile that God is going with them, not just, oh, hey, we're, we're being exiled, we're being sent away from our God, but no, God is going with them. Um, similarly, it, it, I think, connects with John the Baptist because yeah. it's, again, make the way straight, prepare for the Lord. And one of the things I think is really interesting about how the gospel writers use the Isaiah passage about it in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, is the, the way they locate who or what is in the wilderness. Because often you'll get Matthew and Mark and Luke, maybe John does this too, will reference back to the words of Isaiah 40, saying John was in the wilderness, like you know, basically this desert place, you know, this middle of nowhere place out there past the River Jordan. John was in the wilderness, and he was baptizing people, and then they'll quote, like Isaiah says, a voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Isaiah, if you actually read Isaiah 40, the, the voice, it just goes, a voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare a way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The voice isn't in the wilderness in uh, Isaiah, it's in the wilderness prepare a way, and that's paralleled by the second thought, in the desert, prepare a highway. And like we talked before, going back to an earlier series about how Hebrew poetry is rhymed ideas or parallelism, the, the thought is, in the wilderness, there's a roadway, and in the desert, there's a highway. And the gospel writers have sort of slightly changed it and made the voice himself is out in the wilderness, which is fine, mm -hmm. but like the, the idea that Isaiah seems to be getting across is, in this nowhere empty place, God's going to make a highway to bring his people back. Um, and that's really what's going on in Isaiah 40, is this idea of homecoming from from exile. And so as the people are sitting there in Babylon, going, well, how are we ever going to get back? There's no, how would we even get back home? And so Isaiah dreams up this idea of, well, God will make a road. God will be the one. Even though it's going through the middle of nowhere, God will make a highway. Um, but yeah, when the New Testament writers 
see the connection between John, who goes out and hangs out in the wilderness also. They're like, oh yeah, he's the voice. He's the voice who is in the wilderness instead of the pathways in the wilderness. It's maybe a subtle difference, but it's interesting how New Testament writers borrow words and images from the Old Testament and they use them in slightly different ways mm. and give a different skew. And Isaiah meant something before John the Baptizer came along, but now New Testament people or church people can't help but hear Isaiah 40 and go, oh yeah, like John the Baptizer was a voice in the wilderness, which is true, he was, but Isaiah also meant something different before we even get to John. And when, the cool thing about hymns, I think, is that you're allowed to have all those layers all at once. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were doing a strict exegetical paper in a seminary, your professor would be like, nope, you ha- can't have a Jesus moment in the Old Testament. Just, just do Old Testament stuff in the Old Testament. Um, but a hymn is different. These are, these are modern-day hymns and songs and poems that allow us. Yes, and there's another layer <gasps> to this hymn. Tell us the other layer. So this is a Canadian hymn. Ah. And that is where I learned it. I learned it on internship in Canada. In Canada. Yeah. <laughs> um, this was written kind of in the birth of the, of what is it, the United Church of Canada hmm. was this brand new, like, blossoming baby church in the 1800s. And the author of this hymn, John, James Lewis Milligan, had just immigrated over, um, he was in Ontario, and he was a layperson. He was not a preacher, he was not, he was a layperson who was very active um, as a journalist. And um, he wrote several things. Um, he, he was, well, he was in the building trade, but he was also then became a journalist or was a journalist along with his building trade, but he did publish some works, including a play about Judas Iscariot in 1930, and this is his only hymn, Hmm. which he wrote for um, the Canadian hymnal, hymnory? Hymnory? I'm not sure how they pronounce it because it it looks funny to me, but it was published in 1930, and this hymn was... um, Help state the goals of the new de- denomination uh, of, you know, because Canada, especially in the early 1900s, um, a lot of it was wilderness. Yeah. So go out. There's a voice in the wilderness crying, um, prepare the desert, make highways, basically go and evangelize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, this hymn would also be good not just for Advent, but for One Hit Wonder Sundays. When you sing hymns written by only, like, the yeah. person who only wrote one famous hymn. Yep. Nice. Well, nice. not only just one famous hymn, this was his one only hymn. hymn. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, so it's not like Billy Ray Cyrus, who wrote lots and lots of songs, but only is known for Achy Breaky Heart. <laughs> it's, no, this is the only one he did, um, because his main profession was building, like, buildings, huh. and he just occasionally was an awesome writer, so he would write, um... He would write, you know, journalist, journalism articles, and he wrote a play about mm-hmm. Judas Iscariot, and this hymn. That's all. <laughs> so that means, like, 100% of his hymns are awesome. Yes. <laughs> He's got a perfect record. Yep. Nice, nice, nice. Um, the th- I, I really like that point that you, you sort of nodded to, that there's so many layers to this hymn, and that maybe a lot of our hymns are like that, that it's not just what biblical texts 
um, are going on that prompt us or give us ideas, but also um, what's going on in the world around you or what's going on in your life that prompts you to pick particular biblical texts or what needs to be spoken at this moment. That's an important piece that I think sometimes we forget is an important part of writing poetry or writing songs. Even if you are writing for church life and that means you're going to be inspired or drawn from drawing from previous scriptures that are maybe centuries or thousands of years old, um, that how you select what needs to be spoken in this moment, what's what's the need in, in this time of our life, um, and what 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 are the kinds of songs that we have a lack of that we need to, to sing in this particular moment or in this era. And I, sometimes I think we forget the, the timeliness or the contextuality of hymns. There, there are some that become timeless classics that we um, just, well, everybody's been singing this forever, and that, no, there's something particularly about this moment that this hymn needs to be sung. Um, and I, I appreciate you raising that up, that that's going on in, in how we chose what to bring up. Well, the other hymn I wanted to talk about is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because it is my favorite. Um, turns out this hymn is has a lot of different options. There's a lot of different things you could do with this. Like, there are a couple of different tunes that have been used. So, um, you know, just because you see it in the bulletin, don't assume that it's the tune that you know and love. It might be a different one. As well as there are different verses. Not all hymnals will print all of the verses. Erica and I were comparing our two hymnals before we started recording today because she only has seven verses in her hymnal and my hymnal has eight eight verses. But it turns out that I have eight verses because the last verse, verse eight for me, is just the repeat of verse one. So really, we have the same verses. We do. We just like to make it extra could, long. Well, we could do that, too, and just go back. But, you know. um, uh, this, uh, it, is a, it was originally written in Latin, so there are different translations of this hymn. There is just a lot you can do with it. And the the text of the hymn, and because it originally comes from Latin, like this is mm-hmm. an older, older text. This comes from the the famous O antiphons, right? Like the, there are these yeah. sort of traditional ways or, mm-hmm. or prayers of praise that uh, like go back like almost like to the fifth, sixth century of Christian history, right? I mean, it's like, yeah. this is another one of those moments where it's cool because you're singing words, or at least in some form, singing words that go back. Mm-hmm. more than a thousand years uh quite possibly 1500 years and there's been repackaged a little bit but like that's it's it's a cool to think about how many different followers of jesus and how many different places have sung some version of these words so i didn't realize oh antiphons were a thing it's and a, so you just mentioned it steve it, it's a thing um but in the Methodist hymnal, we have some of those uh-huh. that are connected with these verses. And I remember one time in seminary singing this in which we put the antiphons, the spoken antiphons and responses in between each verse. Mm-hmm. And it took what is also one of my favorite Advent hymns, Sarah, uh, <laughs> and, and just added a, a depth to it that I had never experienced before. Because they usually, you know, we're, um, because it's a long tune, we're trying to get through it. You mm-hmm. Know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So... Um, that's something next time I use those antiphons, I'll have to remember that little tidbit. This is maybe an important aside because not everybody speaks musical church nerd. The word antiphon is just like a fancy word for call and response. It's mm-hmm. like there's a two part, like a, you could, it's like an echo or something like that. And like, again, knowing that's part of the history of, of this text, um, 
it, it, it's a reminder to me that, you know, a thousand years ago, fifteen hundred years ago, you're not talking about people opening up their hymnal because they're all literate and they all mm -hmm. can read and they all, for, for example, have their own hymnal. That's not a thing yet. But you could learn a call and response so that the leaders are like, okay, when I say, oh, wisdom from on high, you all say, I mean, it's, it's almost like cheerleading. <laughs> yeah. When I say, oh, you say, key of David, um, <laughs> something like that. But like the, these were easily learnable and singable because of that call and response pattern. Um, and sometimes... Um, and I, I, I will confess I'm sometimes guilty of this too. Sometimes um, church nerds get a certain like um, liturgical snobbery about like that only complicated hymns or very long hymn texts are you know uh, rich enough or, or uh, deep enough, and we sort of criticize like repeated sung and you know mm -hmm. praise and worship uh, refrains like oh that's that's just shallow just sing that all over again. But really, like a lot of our Christian roots of worship have this sort of, well, it started with call and response, because the leader had one copy, they could read the whole thing, and everybody else, they could handle just the repeated refrain, whatever it was. Um, and that, that's, that, the ancient church didn't think it was shallow, it was, they were doing what they could with people who didn't all have hymnals yet, because that hadn't been invented. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot, a lot of deep history. And the, the, the antiphons that are each involve different titles for for Christ, mm -hmm. right? So what what are what are some of the titles that the the hymn uses to call uh, call on Christ? So clearly Emmanuel okay. is the first, um, which means God with us. Right. Um, there's also O Wisdom from on high and O Lord of Might, O Branch of Jesse, O Key of David, Dayspring, King of Nations. So one of the things I think is interesting is um, that the each of those titles like is rooted in the scriptures too, right? So you know, Emmanuel comes right out of uh, Isaiah seven, or the the root of Jesse is another Isaiah image, and how how again what the hymn writers or an antiphon writer earlier had done was like to sort of collect those and like oh these are all ways we can call on Christ and each of them says something different about who Christ is some that are particular to the story of Israel like the key of David that sort of language of Davidic you know hope in, in the Messiah but the ruler of the nations is a sort of broad picture of uh, the, the God who is for everybody for all, all nations in the world and that you can say all these things about Jesus all, that, all, all of these are true um, and I think sometimes, again, we're not great at seeing the, the depth and the richness of all these things that are true about who Jesus is. But each of these O antiphons is meant to highlight something different about who Christ is. And at least in the hymnal I'm looking at right now, which is the Evangelical Lutheran Worship, worship Hymnal, uh, it's the new Cranberry Lutheran Hymnal. And by new, I mean it's less than 20 years old. And when you say cranberry, you don't mean flavored. You haven't looked nope, at it. I mean the, color, the color because one of our older hymnals is bright red, and that's the red hymnal, so this is the Cranberry Hymnal. Got it. Um, but it suggests that one stanza of this paraphrase of the Great O Antiphons may be sung on each of the last days of Advent's Advent as follows. So December 17th, you would sing the second verse, which is about O Wisdom. On December 18th, you would sing about O Lord of Might, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think what they're envisioning as part of your daily practice for the week leading up to Christmas is that you would sing the first verse always, and then each of these days you would sing the corresponding mm -hmm verse so december 17th second verse december 18th third verse december 19th fourth verse so on and so forth until december 23rd where you would sing the eighth verse which is actually just the first verse repeated 
But um, I think it's interesting how as as centuries have gone on, how the church invented these these seasons that we use, and like that may be important for us church nerds to acknowledge. There's nothing in the Bible that commands you have to have Advent candles or forty days of Lent. These are inventions, um, but that. The reason these things emerged was ways to sort of highlight the the depth of meaning of the really important central stories or, or ideas of our faith. And that it's not just, well, we can get it all in one Christmas service on Christmas Eve. That'll get all the meaning of who Christ is and why he came. But there's an intentionality about it. There's no way in one moment or one day we can capture all of what Christ is about. And that these hymns sort of have that sense of, you know, what does it mean to call on Christ as the wisdom of God? And there's a mm-hmm. whole strand of theology to be woven out about how Christ is the wisdom of God that Proverbs picks up on and that Colossians picks up on. What does it mean to call Christ? That, that, that's an important notion, I think. Um, and that part of why the church has taken the time to say we need to spend weeks talking about why is it we're hopeful because otherwise we'll fall into that trap the rest of the culture does that as soon as Christmas Day has come and gone you take your decorations down and you start decorating for Valentine's Day I mean like we're so Mm -hmm. quick that let's get over with it that instead the church said let's sit with us for a while and think about and and simmer with and let it percolate why this is good news that even even that that different pacing is kind of countercultural. And I th- for me personally, I think that's why this is one of my favorites because it has so many of those aspects of who Christ is, and and I've done something kind of like what your hymnal suggests there, except I've done with the four weeks of Advent, mm-hmm. where like I'll have my church sing the first verse every week, but then we'll do a combination of some of the other verses to just try to again slow down and just look at these aspects of who Christ is, so we're not just focusing on the babe in the manger, mm-hmm. but we're focusing on the wholeness of of Christ and looking again, looking forward to, to his second coming, looking forward to his ministry of, you know, here on earth. Um, and to help my, my folks to kind of Christmas is more than just what happens in the nativity scene. Right. Yep. Right. right. And it, it, like, as I think about it, when the gospel writers like Luke gives us the story of the birth of Jesus, he gives us some advance notice of why Jesus is important. He's had Mary sing a song about it. Zechariah sings a song about it. The angels sing a song. So, like, we're prepped for, oh, this is a big deal. This is yeah. what we're hoping for. And then you get the whole rest of the life of Jesus that Luke assumes you would read after the birth story. But our, you know, we're so used to sort of taking it in chunks that you get, like, the, the end point of the story is Jesus born. That's it. That's all we were accomplishing is get Jesus born. Now mm-hmm. we're done. As opposed to who is, why should I care that this baby happened to be laid in the food trough? Um... And and the the hymns like this have a way of, of making us stop and consider mm-hmm. why it's good news, not just that it's good news Jesus was born, but why is that good and why should I care? Cool. So one of the things that I really like about this hymn, well, at least mostly because the tune that we use is, it, it is very slow and it's kind of minor key, kind of chanty too. It's very chanty, but it's still a happy. Um, you know and that the refrain that we sing every single verse is rejoice rejoice Emmanuel shall come to you O Israel it it again sort of speaks to that idea of return from exile or homecoming but it also flips it because it's now Christ coming to you where you are I mean I I think Mm -hmm. both that, Mm -hmm. that tension is important it's not just about will be brought home from exile. That's in that first verse about ransoming captive Israel, but there's, that mourns in lonely exile, but that the idea that Christ comes to where we are, I think that's a powerful idea. And like, like you were saying earlier, the, the deep witness of the prophets isn't just, oh, exile happened, that was punishment, 
God is distant from us, but even when we are forced to go into exile, God says, all right, I'll pack my bags and I'll go with you, um, and I'll bring you home, but I'll be with you even in exile. That's a powerful idea. So, we hope you will join us for further conversations about other uh, Advent-y kind of hymns uh, next time around here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you. Bye.